Welcome to season two. For me personally, my goal is just to be is to be better. As one of those be better as a First, you should come clean. You, you've both listened to the podcast before. It's it, amazing. Okay. What, what's amazing about it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Hey, this is Matt. You're listening to The Slavic Connection. Today, Tom and I talked to Alexei Demyansky about his experience doing Fulbright in Bulgaria and Romania and about political developments in Macedonia, kind of chronologically over the past five, six years. Really interesting stuff. I think you're going to enjoy it. Season two is usually when like sitcoms hit their stride. It's when they introduce a new character or something. Like, you know, Danny DeVito and Always Sunny, or like Mr. Echo and Lost. So you're like our Danny DeVito. I'll go with the Lost reference. The Lost, okay. The Danny. You're one of the others. I am. Oh, I will take those compliments. We're never going to find out what your deal is, though. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to be really disappointed. We're all dead in the end. I, I still don't. Are you a Lost fan, Matt? Um, no, I watched the first season way back when, like on TV when it was mm-hmm. coming out, and then I just um, totally and lost it. You saved yourself from the <laughs> <laughs> I remember I watched season four live and then went back and watched one, two, and three because of like some sort of iTunes restriction. Like I couldn't like access. It was like a total mid 2000s TV oh. gaff. They used to stream it live at the Alamo Draft House theaters, and it was an event. Ooh, it was wow. an awesome That sounds event. fun. Yeah. yeah. So you just put yourself firmly in the Austin culture there. Oh, absolutely. You were Alamo in mid 2000s. Wow. That's yeah. big. So you're from Austin, but you were not in Austin this summer. That's correct. Correct. Where were you? Yeah, this past year, I was doing research through a Fulbright program. Uh, I was in Romania for five months starting last fall, and then I was in. Bulgaria in the spring, and then I went to Macedonia in the summer for a little bit to visit family and kind of go on vacation. Cool. Since that was needed before coming back. So let's start with Romania and Bulgaria. So I think the bulk of our conversation will be about Macedonia, correct? Yes. So what were you doing in Romania, Bulgaria? Um, So basically the project that I got selected uh, to work on um, is sort of examining protest movements that are taking place in both countries that deal with the issue of corruption and if there is a sort of a transnational connection. Do these movements uh, talk to people abroad? Um, and what, if anything, do, do those connections um, to like-minded movements across Europe or anywhere in the world um, do for the actual movement itself? Does it help them improve? Do they gain new repertoires of how to protest, new ideas, new ways to organize, and things like that? Um, so cool. it's pretty interesting. So you're just like chatting with protesters? Are you working with bigger groups? Who, who are you working with? Yeah, mostly um, a lot of activist groups, um, some civil society groups. Um, I initially was thinking I'd reach out to government officials that deal with corruption, um, but I ended up not doing that because it wasn't the focus of what I wanted to focus on. Um, and so mostly activist groups and civil society leaders, which was which was really cool. Um, and it was nice to talk to people. Everyone has their own perspective on everything. So it's really great. Very cool. Are you speaking English to these people? Speaking yes. Um, I, in Romania, I don't speak Romanian. So I that was all in English. In Bulgaria, because I speak Macedonian and also Bulgarian, right. um, I was able to do some of the interviews in Bulgarian, which was great. That's awesome. I mean, did you get any specific knowledge that you felt like you could take back to the Macedonian 
context? Because I know you're also kind of involved with protest in, in Macedonia. Yeah, um, I think that there is a lot of lessons that can be taken out of that. Um, in one sense, um, in Bulgaria, the groups actually reached out, to, like actively reached out abroad to other people to kind of gain new insights and new ideas. Um, and right now, I kind of think that maybe led to a failure of the movements. I don't think that they actually gained anything uh, positive out of that. Whereas in Romania, they really viewed it as a very domestic issue, even though they did identify similar problems with other countries in the region. Um, but they were really focused on this is a domestic issue that we need to deal with. Um, and they've been far more successful in the sense of those movements have had a lot more longevity than in Bulgaria, which basically about a year and then it died out. Especially in a place like, you know, Romania and Bulgaria, they kind of just have this like clockwork political system. Like they really want the hardliner, you know, who's going to set the country straight. And then like they want the everyman who's going to, you know, bring back the real Bulgarian spirit. Then they want the le the leftist who's going to integrate and then just keeps going round and round in circles. Yeah. Did you see that as like a through line in sort of like those post-Soviet states? Or, I mean, you know, what are your, like, do you have larger takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I think what's kind of interesting is both in Romania and Bulgaria and a lot of countries in the Balkans, I think what we get is politics that are actually non-ideological in the sense of um, you don't, like, political parties identify as social democratic or they identify as liberal, but that really doesn't mean anything in the mm -hmm. sense of what policies they actually pursue. So, you know, in the case of Macedonia, the former government that was sort of a right wing, sort of center right party, um, conservative party, uh, pursued sort of almost socialist policies in the sense of offering people free bus rides, increasing pensions, um, a lot of these sort of populist takes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really think that the ideological lenses, the way that the political parties identify really actually means nothing at the end of the day when it comes down to what policies they're pushing for. So is it so pretty much they're positioning themselves while they're campaigning and then while they're actually in charge, they can do whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of the politics, mostly in Macedonia, but also you see it in Bulgaria, you see it in Romania, um, is essentially patronage clientelistic networks. You know, mm -hmm. I offer you something um, and you get something in return if you vote for me. And that's just kind of the way the system works. And so people, you know, seek out a position um, politically how they're going to vote based on their own personal interests. Is this party that's going to be in power going to be able to let me keep doing my job in the public administration? Or if the government changes and a new party's in power, am I going to lose my job, not be able to provide for my family? So those sort of patronage networks are far stronger than, again, any ideological right. lens of the political parties. Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of a banal question, but I think you, you, you hear a lot about the difference between scholarship and activism. And now it's becoming more popular, kind of activist scholars and you know people seeing themselves that way. Do you separate these? I mean, how does how do you separate those things for yourself personally? And so, like for example, when you're in Bulgaria and Romania, are you more of a of a scholar? But then when you're when you're talking about Macedonia, you kind of drift more into the activist side. Or how does kind of all how does all that shake out? Yeah, I mean, I there is now a very large trend, especially in social movement research. Um, that sees scholars actively engaging as uh, people that kind of embed themselves with movements. Um, you get, there's different analyses, there's protest event analysis, there's sort of in-depth interviews, um, there's, you know, observer participation, essentially, they observe these movements by kind of embedding themselves there. 
And there is all, often a bridging of lines. You know, people sometimes begin to identify with the people that they're studying and things like that. And that's very normal. And it's in scholarly research, if you are very open about that and you say it out front, it's not a problem. Um, for me, in Romania and Bulgaria, I identified in a way because I saw a lot of parallels to Macedonia, where I was far more engaged because I'm a citizen. I These were things that impacted me and family and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's... It's sometimes hard to draw a line, but I also think a lot more can be added to the scholarship um, from people that are more actively engaged in a lot of these issues. Mm -hmm. So let's jump into what's going on in Macedonia at large right now, which is a loaded question for sure. It, I mean, so I assume most of our listeners, you know, understand the naming controversy and sort of the ethnic conflict going on in the country. Where do we start in a place like that? Because a lot of this is like using, you know, you know, thousand year old nationalities to claim their ownership of certain land that is being put into 2019. How, how are we supposed to understand what's going on in the country right now? Yeah. Um, when it comes to the naming dispute, um, it's been going on for a long time. It essentially started in the early 90s when Yugoslavia fell apart um, and essentially Macedonia gained independence in that way. Uh, when we gain independence, we essentially apply to the United Nations to get full membership under the Republic of Macedonia. Um, Greece immediately vetoed this. They have a northern region in Greece that's also called Macedonia. Um, that was the main objection for them. It can't have the name the same name. They viewed it sort of in a very irredentist manner that we were going to sort of retake or, you know, reintegrate these other parts of Macedonia that have been chopped up. Um, and this is a common sort of trend across the Balkans. Everyone has this greater Greece, greater Albania, greater Macedonia, like when their country was bigger historically, um, you know, they're <laughs> so upset that now these lands have been lost and whatnot. Right. Um, and so this was the first time in the region that this took on a very significant impact in the sense of we were prevented from joining the United Nations as Republic of Macedonia. And in 1995, we signed a provisional agreement with Greece that made our name at the United Nations and among international institutions, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, mm -hmm. this ugly, hideous acronym known Horrible. as FIROM. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just terrible. So people never knew, like in the UN, people were like, are you in the Fs? Are you in the Ms? Are you in the Ts? Like, mm -hmm. where do you guys sit? How does this work? Uh, and no one knew. Um, and so that kind of lingered um, on coming up with a compromise. And so a lot of the governments tried to come to a compromise. Um, but the former government um, that was the center-right um, party, they sort of really entrenched themselves, didn't actively engage Greece on this, pro on this problem, um, maybe more antagonized Greece than anything. Um, there was this antiquitization process that took place. A lot of places in Skopje, mm -hmm. in the capital, were sort of all these statues popped up of Alexander the Great and random historical figures that basically was a thorn in the eye. Um, to Greece. Um, and so as years went on, the problem just kept getting worse and worse. Um, now, after the government has changed, this government more actively engaged this problem um, and came to an agreement. The problem was people initially believed we were either going to get some kind of qualifier. It was going to be a geographical thing. It was going to be, you know, Republic of North Macedonia, which is what it is now. Um, it was going to be Republic of Macedonia and then in parentheses Skopje, which was a very weird take. It was going to be Republic of Vardar Macedonia, which is the main river that runs through there. So there were a lot of options. Um, and so people, I think, would have been okay with North Macedonia. The problem is um, that we always believed that this was going to be a qualifier that was again going to apply to the UN and international institutions. Mm -hmm. But the agreement that was hashed out meant that we internally now had to apply this name. 
So now it's no longer where Republic of Macedonia, but outside they refer to us as Firearm. Right. Now it's we're North Macedonia at home and abroad. So you thought it was me like in doing business as North Macedonia, but we're actually Macedonia. Right. And so, yeah. And so people were really upset about that. There was a referendum on the name issue. Um, essentially, it did not meet the threshold to qualify. People just didn't come out and vote. Um, but the majority of people that did come out voted in favor of it. Um, is that apathy based on just like we've been talking about this for twenty five years? Leave us alone. Was there or was there active boycotting? There was. There was an active boycott movement um, that was basically led by that former center right um, party that had been in power for eleven years. Um, they sort of toe the more nationalist line, and so they kind of were opposed to the agreement. Essentially, they were like, "We have to change the constitution. This is unacceptable um, for a large part of the population." Um, and you know that makes sense. A lot of people were upset about this. They, this is not what people thought that what was going to happen at the end of the day. And so, um, after the referendum passed, um, the EU, the U S a lot of countries and the government were basically like, this is a great success. Um, we're going forward with this, even though the referendum actually didn't meet the, the qualifying threshold. Um, and so they essentially plowed through, um, voted it in parliament um, by offering 10 MPs who are on massive corruption charges, um, crimes in their former capacities as ministers or whatever in the former government. Essentially, they did backdoor deals where these people are likely going to get lower sentences and things like that so that they then end up voting for this mm-hmm. uh, because you need a, a two thirds majority and they don't have the two thirds majority. I'm just curious on kind of socio-demographic, socio-political as well lines, how does it break down? Is it like young people of these political views supported, older people of these political views are against it? Kind of how does, how do those kinds or of the things Albanian break down? minority? Yeah, yeah it's, it's very mixed. Um, in general, the Albanian population in the country is seen as being adamantly pro-EU and pro-NATO. Um, and so at the end of the day, when we talk about the name issue, the crux is NATO and EU integration. In 2008, we were supposed to join NATO together with Albania and Croatia. Um, at the last moment, Greece applied a veto mm-hmm. and said, you cannot enter. And we were not even trying to enter as Macedonia, we were entering as Viram. Um, and so then we sued Greece in the International Court of Justice um, and won the case in 2011 that they were not allowed to block us on this, but that really doesn't matter. No one did anything and we were still prevented from joining. And so the name issue is was seen by many as one of the main hurdles for our further integration into NATO and the European Union. So you get the Albanian community, which is very in favor of that, voted. You get a lot of people, younger people that say, I do not have a future in this country. I will move to Germany, to France, to Canada, wherever. If this doesn't get solved, that came out to vote. You have a lot of young people that also were like, "No, I, you know, support the former ruling party. That's very nationalist. I have those sentiments. I'm not voting for this." You had a lot of people that didn't like the way it was being done, that viewed it, you know, in, as a very corrupt manner, and voted against it um, or just abstained. And so, yeah, I mean, wow. it's yeah. all, all over the place. Kind of so many yeah. currents that are mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the cheese pizza compromise. <laughs> you get the blandest <laughs> thing, and just no <laughs> one wants it at the end of the day. And even um, this is all going on on top of like massive political uh, corruption. There was a wiretapping scandal yes, like, going on yeah. with the former. They have a long acronym as well for the, the national. The, 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 yeah, it's, I was it's literally the, the longest. It is like <laughs> nine. It is nine 
I think nine letter acronym for a country, for a political party. Uh, it basically means like internal Macedonian revolutionary organization dash Democratic Party for National Macedonian Unity. Um, it literally, yeah, it's yeah. just very long. Um, yeah, so essentially that party, um, so essentially the main scandals start with that party. Um, that party came to power in 2006 on this huge economic platform that people were really excited about. A lot of people voted um, for this political party to come in power. Uh, in 2008, essentially, when we didn't get the NATO integration, the party realized that it can't um, perform, that it can't, you know, meet the expectations that so many people had. And so then it just reverted to what most parties previously had done is clientelism, patronage and corruption. But it took it to a whole new level mm -hmm. that we had never seen. Um, and so a lot of, you know, there was a lot of restrictions on civil society, a lot of restrictions on the free media. Um, one of the major TV stations, 2011, was shut down. Um, and so there was a very repressive environment. A lot of young people were leaving. Um, in the past sort of 25 years, we've seen almost 600,000 people leave the country, which is almost 20% of the population. Two million Persian countries. Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of problems. But in general, the party did very well clientelistically and offered things to people. And so they were able to main, you know, maintain themselves in power. Um, the first, there were a lot of waves of protests, some in 2011, some later on. But the main sort of starting point that I see recently were student protests that first took place in 2014. Um, and essentially the students protested against this law that would force them to take more exams. Um, and a lot of people came out and they at that time were the largest anti-government protests in the history of the country. Mm -hmm. No one had seen so many young people come out. Um, and a lot of the older generation also was like, wow, it's really sad that we've been so apathetic. And now like my kids are telling me what I'm supposed to do. My kids are sort of leading the way. And a lot of older people came out and supported mm -hmm. the students. Um, and so the government essentially ended up finally backing down on the law, inviting students and professors to negotiate on what the law would be. And at that moment, um, the opposition who had been in, this is in 2014, they'd been in opposition basically for eight years at this point. Um, they realized that there was momentum here, that there was so many people out on the street that they could capitalize on it. Um, they had received wiretap recordings from members of the secret police um, within the Ministry of Interior um, that really showed what the, now I'll refer to it as a regime, had been doing for all of these years. Um, the way I like to describe the contents of the wiretaps is if you watch House of Cards, think of House of Cards like on steroids. Mm -hmm. um, it is really disgusting, brutal stuff. I mean, uh, slurs about ethnic minorities, starting a war in ethnically cleansing minorities, um, having opposition politician members raped in jail, silencing journalists and covering up murders. Uh, I mean, it is like some of the most vile things you could possibly hear mm -hmm. people talking about and they talk about it so casually. So essentially, that government had wiretapped 20,000 people in the country, including itself. So like, no one learned Watergate's mistake, but clearly. Um, <laughs> we gotta so, write their memoirs. Yeah. Um, so basically they had wiretapped themselves. And so the recordings are them talking about all of these things. Um, and so protests started, that was in 2015, as these sort of, the wiretaps became known as bombs. 
Protests started happening um, and it was really great. A lot of people came out. There was a lot of ethnic unity at the time. People from all ethnic groups, from all ages were out and saying, this is wrong. Which was new, right? Most, yeah. It was mostly very central or very uh, ghettoized. Who was yeah. protesting anything? This exactly. was one of the first like hand Macedonian. Exactly, movies. exactly. Um, and, and that was a really great thing to see people do. Um, at that time, essentially, uh, the protests weren't going anywhere at some point. People had, the, us in the protest movement had certain demands, um, but they weren't being met. And the EU and the United States essentially intervened. They brought major political parties to the table to sign this agreement that came to be known as Persiano Agreement. Um, and essentially it was supposed to lead the way to elections to overcome the crisis. And it formed what's known as the Special Prosecutor's Office, which is this prosecutor for high level corruption that essentially is gonna investigate the crimes that we all heard in the wiretaps. Mm -hmm. um, so this was all going through, the elections weren't gonna be taking place. There was a lot of more scuffles and things like that. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, the protest movement sort of died down. Um, it was called I Protest Protestira, um, and it kind of died down. But then the next year in 2016, on April 12th, literally out of the blue, no one was expecting this, The Corruption prosecutors already doing investigations that have been opened into these people and whatnot. Um, out of the blue on April 12th, the president literally holds a press conference and says, I pardon all 56 individuals that are under investigation for crimes by this office. Pulls a jail for. Yeah. And so people were like, first, how do you know who these 56 <laughs> people are? Um, because that's, you know, clearly the prosecutor's private information. You're not supposed to know this. So that night, people came out with massive fervor and burned down his office in the main street in Skopje. People were pissed. People were livid um, that this happened. And so protests started up again for him to abolish the pardons, um, and they kept going. And so other than that one night that was very violent, the remaining protests were very, very peaceful. Um, and they used essentially what people did um, was they filled balloons or random things with color and they threw paint at the buildings. And so the protest movement got the nickname the Colorful Revolution, which is kind of a pun on the idea of color revolutions um, and things like that, but also because it was literally colorful in the sense right. of all this paint was flying around. And so this was probably the highest political moment um, in recent history. This was the first time so many people were coming out um, and the belief was that this party needs to go. They've been in power 11 years. Um, it's the longest any political party has been in power in the country. Um, you know, these people need to be charged for their crimes um, and we need to be able to move forward. And so basically the Colorful Revolution uh, went on throughout the summer of 2016, um, sparking massive, massive protests. Uh, essentially in support of the Special Prosecutor's Office and for elections. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Tracy. Welcome to the Slava Connection. So glad to see you. Thanks. Happy to be here. So you reached out to me and you wanted to like help us out. Like, did you have any particular idea of like 
what you thought, like what you wanted to do with us? Yeah, um, mainly I didn't want to be on the mic. I wanted to be <laughs> in the background. Wow. I wanted to learn all the fun tech gear stuff, but uh, here I am yeah. learning everything all at once. Perfect, perfect, yeah. Um, like that's the ideal way to, um, to, to do it. You don't have like a technical background like with microphones and stuff? Uh, no, not really. I have a musical background, which you would think Wait, at some what, point. What did you play? I play trombone. Trombone. So that's wow. what I studied at like UT. Like band kid or? Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. oh, I know this. You've said all this before. Yeah, that's all true. Yeah. <laughs> like, why did you, did, did you, did you give it up totally or? I didn't give it up. I just, you know, kind of changed directions. Uh, during my bachelor's, I started studying Czech. So as yeah. soon as I figured out that the government would pay me to keep studying Czech, I kind of kept it up. But When you played uh, trombone, did you ever consider becoming a jazz musician? Yeah, for sure. I wanted to study jazz at UT, but they really peg you into orchestral. It was a lot of classical music, didn't really have time to join um, just one jazz combo, but it didn't really go anywhere. But yeah, back to the whole mic and tech stuff, I just never really learned how to plug my microphone in. It was always someone else's yeah. job, the sound guy's job. So yeah. I'm excited to learn more. Yeah, that's funny. It seems to me that like in today's world, like learning a musical instrument and then like learning the technical side of like sound editing and sound production, those things should go hand in hand because it's... It just seems natural to me. No, if this podcast wants to turn into bashing the music school, I am all oh, for it. Wow, yeah. <laughs> now that I have our, no connections I'm sure there. our executive producer <laughs> would approve. Um. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of fun to me. 